Hi, everyone. This is Ian, producer with Democrises. If you like Democrises and want to hear more, we'd so appreciate the small favor of reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. These reviews help Democrises get exposure and find even more listeners, in addition to letting us know how we're doing. We can't thank you enough. Before we begin today, I want to say how grateful we are to the patrons who support the podcast on Patreon. We are paying to produce this content ad-free out of our own funds, helped only by your donations. We're still short of our goal to make us revenue neutral, and we'd be grateful for anything you can contribute. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises. Democracy, demography, and demoralization. Welcome to the season finale of Demo Crises. Thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. To wrap things up for the season, I want to focus on several actionable solutions to solve our demo crisis. And these are not that hard. We'll talk about campaign finance, electoral reform, the media. We'll take a tour to New Zealand and Germany, and of course to Teddy Roosevelt, but for a new reason. But we've covered a lot of ground over the last season, so let's recap quickly. We learned in our series debut that great societies can collapse quickly due to familiar factors of overpopulation, elite conflict, and mass hardship. We saw that every great civilization of the past eventually succumbed to internal division and died by suicide, not murder. We saw that democracy has nothing magical about it to produce continually positive outcomes and that we in the United States are experiencing Plato's predicted decline from oligarchy to democracy toward, we fear, tyranny. We learned that the details of democracy make all the difference, which is why Norway is doing much better than Venezuela today. We saw that Teddy Roosevelt, through a combination of luck, skill, determination, and allies, was able to overcome the barriers of history, and launch America onto a better trajectory. And we learned that we can use Teddy's example as a template for our own behavior now and in the future. We learned from Dr. Jason Brennan and Dr. Peter Turchin that there are ways that countries can make their systems work better. We saw that President Trump's election marks the declinist end of the Reagan era, after which a new regime will begin. It's incumbent on us today to make that regime as good as possible, like the eras founded by FDR, Lincoln, or Reagan, instead of a disastrous era like the one founded by Andrew Jackson, which ultimately birthed the Civil War. We also discussed tribalism and saw that downward spirals of tribalism can end in complete tragedy, such as the American Civil War or the death of Romeo and Juliet. All of these stories build a strong case that we in the early 21st century are at a true inflection point in history. The great American empire built up over two centuries faces a fork in the road. We can either indulge the drug of unfounded optimism and let history hit us before we're ready, or we can use the evidence available to us and our knowledge of history to avert the fates of ancient Rome or Qing Dynasty China. Indeed, our time has many reasons for optimism, 
alongside many reasons for pessimism. In the first two decades of this millennium, we have invented amazing new technologies and helped raise billions out of poverty. Yet we have also been derelict on issues like climate change or most issues of internal politics and ideology in the United States. American author Paul Hawken, when asked about his view of the future, has said, quote, When asked if I am pessimistic or optimistic about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the science about what is happening on Earth and aren't pessimistic, you don't understand data. But if you meet the people who are working to restore this Earth and the lives of the poor and you aren't optimistic, you haven't got a pulse. What I see everywhere in the world are ordinary people willing to confront despair, power, and incalculable odds in order to restore some semblance of grace, justice, and beauty to this world. Or, as I like to frame it, if I asked you whether we were 100% doomed as Americans or a global civilization, you would certainly say no, because we have overcome great challenges before. But if I asked you if the chance of collapse was 0%, you'd have to say no as well, given all that we've discussed. So we can only conclude that the chance of doom lies between 0 and 100%, meaning by definition, our future depends on what we do right now in the face of our demo crisis. Let's consider as an analogy a healthy patient who has just learned that they have cancer. The ingeniously designed human body nevertheless has weak points that become self-destructive under certain conditions. Cells normally die when they are damaged, but cancer cells divide continuously without dying, eventually consuming all of the patient's energy and metastasizing to vital organs like the brain, lungs, and liver, and eventually causing death. When a patient is newly diagnosed with cancer, if they do not wish to die, they have two choices undergo painful chemotherapy and or surgery or hope that it spontaneously resolves. Chemotherapy is a miserable experience. It's full of horrible side effects, nausea, hair loss, fatigue, pain, and it has a high failure rate. Yet the alternative is near certain death. Take the case of Steve Jobs. When he was diagnosed with a rare form of pancreatic cancer in 2004, he found out that it was curable with surgery. Pancreatic cancer usually cannot be cured by surgery alone, but his could because it was a rare type of cell. However, Steve Jobs distrusted the experts, and because he was a Buddhist and vegetarian, he tried to treat the cancer himself with diet, which, in my professional medical opinion, was tragically mistaken. During those crucial nine months, when he tried to use alternative therapies, the cancer spread to his liver, and when Jobs realized that diet wasn't working, he eventually had the surgery. The surgery worked, but it was too late. The cancer had already spread to his other organs. Jobs eventually needed a liver transplant in 2009, and he died in 2011. No amount of money or medical treatment could save him then. Steve Jobs was an amazing person, one of the great geniuses of our time. Yet in his older years, he confronted a problem for which he was unprepared and in his hubris ignored the advice of experts. By the time he was willing to undergo painful treatment, it was too late. America today is Steve Jobs. 
We are an exceptional nation, continuously achieving unprecedented feats of all kinds. But a dangerous cancer is growing within us. We have good treatments available, but there will come a point at which they will no longer work. Perhaps we've already passed that point, but if not, we will soon. As we frame our discussion of solutions, let's return to Plato for an accurate diagnosis of our governing problem. In Book 6 of the Republic, Plato describes his ship of state analogy. This is analogy appropriate for ancient Greece. He says, in order to learn to sail a ship, you have to study the stars. So if you're on a ship, there are people who sit up on the deck looking at the stars in order to figure out where to go. The problem is this takes time and energy away from, say, fighting over the rudder. So while the people who know how to sail are up studying the stars, the people who are devious are down fighting over the rudder. Therefore, the skills needed to actually seize control of the ship are completely different from knowing how to sail it. Therefore, Plato is relatively pessimistic about who will be chosen to be our leaders. This is our problem in America today. In America's government, we have the wrong people in charge with the wrong information and the wrong incentives. Or... As E.O. Wilson, evolutionary biologist, has said, the real problem of humanity is the following, quote, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology, end quote. The solutions we will present in this episode address the institutional problems of the United States. We will leave solving the problem of our paleolithic emotions to a different season of the podcast focusing on demoralization. Institutions matter and they are easier to deal with. In the book, Why Nations Fail, the author's central premise is that the reason that different countries, indeed even democracies, the reason that they succeed or fail is simply about the strength of their institutions and whether they channel human nature and energy into creative exploits or into destructive exploits. America's political institutions were designed by geniuses, and so far they have performed admirably. They built many features into our system that helped foster the best of democracy and humanity and mitigate the worst, and these factors are indeed responsible for much of our country's success. We should remember and be grateful that we are starting today in America with a very strong hand. Unfortunately, in the two centuries since our founding, the most malevolent members of our society have found ways to undermine it. Indeed, one of my central theses about reform is that the things are the way they are because someone is benefiting. As tough as things are in America for so many people, they are superb for Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the extremely rich. And since these are the people with power, they will naturally resist any reforms. However, Remember that Teddy Roosevelt faced a similarly difficult situation and he defeated it. Getting back to the problem of the wrong people, the wrong information, and the wrong incentives, I'd like to propose five priority institutional solutions. These are not all of the necessary solutions to America's woes today, but in my view, they are among the highest impact, urgency, and feasibility. Other issues which are not institutional, such as solving poverty and inequality, would certainly help a lot, but we will address these in future seasons. 
The five institutional solutions can be pursued in any order, since success in one will help the other solutions come about as well. Remember, we are currently trapped in a vicious cycle of tribalism, a Nash equilibrium that repeats year after year and keeps getting worse. We need to somehow set off a virtuous cycle of cooperation, and any win would help. My five priority institutional proposals are ending gerrymandering, campaign finance, electoral reform, education reform, and journalism reform. The last two, education and journalism, would help solve our information problem and are partly technological, so can conveniently be pursued outside of politics. The other three problems, gerrymandering, campaign finance, and electoral reform, feed off of each other, and successes in all of them would be a lot easier if we could first solve tribalism. Take the problem of gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is easy to solve. It's the absurd practice of state legislators using partisan logic to draw the boundaries of their state's districts in order to protect their tribe's seats. It has been called by President Obama, quote, politicians picking their voters rather than voters picking their politicians. The solution is simple. It should be illegal and is clearly unconstitutional because some people's votes count way more than others. Some of the more egregious examples include the 5th District of Florida, two almost exclusively African-American neighborhoods 140 miles apart connected by a highway. Nobody lives on that highway. But the two neighborhoods are drawn together in order to lump all the Democrats into one district so that Republicans could win the seats nearby. The Florida Supreme Court finally ruled it unconstitutional in 2015 after it had existed for 25 years. As simply another amid countless examples, in the wave election of 2006, Republicans lost the popular vote in Michigan 54 to 46, yet lost none of their 9 to 6 majority in congressional seats because of the way the districts were drawn. This year, despite rank dissatisfaction with Washington, only 74 of 435 House seats are competitive at all, a mere 1 in 6. Many states have zero competitive races. It is not at all what the founders intended the House to be. The House was supposed to capture the passions of the people. Instead, the only candidates who ever lose are the moderates. Iowa's and Arizona's constitution do not permit gerrymandering. They were the first two states to do so. In 2008, liberal California quietly passed a law outlawing gerrymandering as well. This year, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court found the recently drawn districts completely ridiculous and also overturned that map, which is one of the reasons why the Democrats picked up seats in Pennsylvania in the midterm elections. Also, the North Carolina Supreme Court found the same thing. The U.S. Supreme Court should simply make this easy for us and abolish all gerrymandering. Few states would take this step on their own, since it would simply advantage the other tribe. Unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court had a chance in 2004 when Republicans drew absurd boundaries in Texas in order to pick up three more seats in Congress. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision down party lines with conservatives in favor, ruled that the issue wasn't, quote, justiciable, saying that they did not know how to determine what was egregious gerrymandering, which is patently absurd because Antonin Scalia would never stop telling people how smart he was. The Supreme Court had a chance to act as a referee and improve democracy by making a better standard for both tribes simultaneously which, as we saw in the tribalism episode, is the best way to defeat tribalism. The conservatives on the court in 2004, however, demurred on their chance, 
in one of their many pathetic derelictions of duty. We can see why McConnell was willing to fight so dirty to get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court. Still, we can end gerrymandering with good lawsuits and good state referendum, and we should. There were several on the 2018 ballots. It really is a shame that the court is such a partisan place. So that's gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is easy to solve in practice, but hard without solving tribalism. Campaign finance follows the same pattern. There is a simple solution. Public financing of all campaigns. No more fundraising emails. No permanent campaign where your voice doesn't really matter because billionaires will drown you out. Let's do some really simple math. Using the average cost of races since 2016, in a two-party system, if each candidate for president gets a billion dollars, each Senate candidate gets $10 million, and each House candidate gets $1.5 million, the total bill for this is only $6 billion over four years, which is peanuts. Go to democracies.com to check out the math. That $6 billion equals $5 a year in taxes for each citizen. Hell, we could even dream of a moderate third party for a whopping $7.50 per person in our taxes. That's why the presidential election fund, that question on your taxes, allows you to donate $3 for free. It's worth it. It's shared sacrifice, the other best tactic to break the tribalism trap. But again, as long as tribalism reigns, we can't get there. That's why McConnell worked so hard to get conservatives on the court to overturn campaign finance law with Citizens United. Citizens United is a revolting 5-4 partisan Supreme Court decision overturning most campaign finance law in place since the Teddy Roosevelt administration. Now any billionaire, no matter how nefarious, can spend unlimited dollars on a political race as long as you can't prove that they, quote, coordinated with a candidate. They used First Amendment grounds that corporations should have the same right to speech as people. It is absolutely preposterous. I summarize it as all speech is free, but some speech is freer than others. I know we all think about the presidential race, and we should, but Citizens United is particularly egregious at the congressional level, which is our best hope to check a disastrous president or to have our local issues heard. Unlimited spending might not affect a high-profile presidential race as much, but now that corporations or labor unions or anyone with a lot of money can spend unlimited millions to destroy a candidate, for Congress, the implied threat is enough to make any congressman or senator a coward. The new system is great for majority leaders like Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell who want to keep their sheep in line, but it is terrible for America. It is not a coincidence that almost zero Republicans have stood up to Trump after Citizens United and that few Democrats will challenge Pelosi. It certainly helps keep them silent. The implied threat from deep-pocketed Republican donors like the oil industry to them in the primary was just too great. That's why Jeff Flake and Bob Corker stepped down this year. They would have gotten crushed in their primary by unlimited spending, in concert, of course, with the tribalist-in-chief. But on campaign finance, it's not just Republicans who let the country down. In 2008, both candidates, Obama and McCain, pledged to use public financing for their campaigns. However, when Obama realized how much money he could raise and gain an advantage, he simply abandoned his pledge in June and raised billions for himself, while McCain kept to his pledge. 
Obama outspent McCain by nearly three to one in the entire race and up to seven to one in some states. The media let him get away with it. But it's moves like that which accelerate the spiral of tribalism. Once you break a norm, it's awfully hard to get it back because the other side knows you'll cheat when you have to and they aren't dealing with a completely honest person. As badly as Republicans act, when Democrats act that way too, there's zero incentive for anyone to do the right thing. Other than John McCain, of course. Now let's turn to the issue of electoral reform. What do we even mean by this? We mean changing the system by which we select individuals for the legislative and executive branches. We must not take for granted that our current system, which is lousy, is the only system we can have. Indeed, there is precedent for significant changes in how we select our representatives for a specific purpose and with positive results, both in the United States and abroad. Let me tell you a story about an English-speaking country that 50 years ago suffered the same sort of electoral injustice and inefficiency that we are suffering in the United States today, and then they did something positive about it. The root cause of their problem was a winner-take-all system of voting, like what we have in the United States, in which winning 51% of the vote meant you won the whole seat and the losers got nothing. This made it possible to repeatedly win control of the legislature despite losing the national popular vote. It's called first-past-the-post voting, and it's awful. In the interview with Jason Brennan earlier in this season, he said the same thing. In 1975 in New Zealand, a right-wing government led by a brash, overweight, politically incorrect populist named Robert Muldoon took power and proceeded to rule divisively and poorly, losing the confidence of the majority of the people. We'll talk about him more in a minute. In the next two elections, because of the the first-past-the-post voting system, this right-wing government lost the popular vote but still won a majority of seats in parliament due to gerrymandering. In 1978, because of disillusionment with the two major parties, a third party won 16% of the national vote, yet won exactly one seats, compared to 51 seats for Muldoon's party, despite winning only 40% of the vote. This repeated in 1981, in which Muldoon's party fell to 39% of the vote, yet maintained a narrow majority in parliament 47 to 45. By 1984, the majority of Kiwis were passionate about the need to change their system as they were forced to suffer the minority rule of a right-wing populist unfit for the job. Sound familiar? Let me tell you a little more about the leader of the right-wing party, Robert Muldoon, who, yes, has been compared to Trump, as recently as Bloomberg News in 2017. Muldoon came to power in 1975, promising, quote, government by the ordinary bloke. He was combative with the press and preferred to stoke his white populist base who loved him and called themselves Rob's Mob. He insulted foreign leaders, once sneering at U.S. President Jimmy Carter and calling him, quote, just a peanut farmer from Georgia. He once punched demonstrators and stripped naked at another cocktail party. Political observers call him a less extreme version of Trump. His first term, he faced a recession, so he set about to unconstitutionally put into place a generous social security program and inflation and unemployment went up. Meanwhile, he set about deporting brown people. 
In the case of New Zealand, that meant Polynesians from Samoa, Tonga, and Fiji, many of whom had been recruited to New Zealand after World War II to fill a labor shortage, and who had now been in the country for decades but had overstayed their visa. At first glance, that may sound fair to deport visa overstayers. But what if I told you that Polynesians comprised only a third of the overstayers, but made up 86% of those prosecuted, while the majority of the overstayers were from Great Britain, Australia, and South Africa? Muldoon's party ran racist political advertisements about them during the 1975 election and conducted dawn raids against Polynesian migrants ripping them from their homes. This is ironic, of course, since New Zealand was originally Polynesian land. Sound familiar? Re-elected in 1978 with a minority of the popular vote and obsessed with his country's trade deficit, his next term was focused on his, quote, think big economic program, which was mainly to spend vast government sums on national oil and gas development, which not surprisingly did not pay for themselves. Still running further deficits, New Zealand was hit by a recession and inflation, which led him to freeze prices and wages, exacerbating the situation since anyone who studies economics knows that's a bad idea. Meanwhile, he allowed the South African all-white rugby team to tour in New Zealand, indirectly supporting apartheid and causing an international incident. Then, visibly drunk at a late-night event in 1984 and being harangued by members of his own party, he called for a snap election only a month later, which, thank goodness, he finally lost. He, of course, made the transition to the Labour government as difficult as possible, causing a constitutional and currency crisis in New Zealand. So what did the Kiwis do in the face of their demo crisis? They set about to maturely change their voting system away from first past the post. The Labour Party, a center-left party, proposed what is known as a mixed-member proportional system, which is much fairer. In this election, each person gets not one vote, but two. First, you vote for your local representative, and the second, you vote for a party. New Zealand has 71 electoral districts, but 120 seats in Parliament. The 71 local representatives are those who win the local elections. But the remaining seats in Parliament are filled by national party lists to ensure that the proportion won across the country by each party is represented in Parliament. This makes it a lot easier for third parties to be viable if voters are dissatisfied with the major two. Whereas, first past the post all but guarantees a two-party system. The Kiwis not only had the right idea, but they went about reform very pragmatically. With the nation dissatisfied by their system, the Labour Party made electoral reform a significant part of their platform. They were willing to forego some of their hold on the two-party duopoly for the good of the country. In 1992, New Zealand voters voted on a non-binding referendum with two questions. One, did they want to change their voting system? And two, what did they want to change it to? 85% voted to change the system and 70% favored mixed member proportional. These results were so impressive that the next year a binding referendum was held between first past the post and mixed member proportional and mixed member proportional won 54 to 46. This decision now had the confidence of the people. This was much better than what they did with Brexit when they only had one chance to make a consequential decision and many people really didn't understand what they were voting on. Today in New Zealand, five parties hold seats in Parliament, including the Greens and a party called New Zealand First, and the coalition government is composed of three parties, led by a woman named Jacinda Ardern from the left-of-center Labour Party. Governance is by many accounts better. 
and at least they aren't hampered by the awful two-party system. Some might object that New Zealand is a tiny country with 4 million people and 40 million sheep, so it can't help guide the U.S. That's a valid concern. But Germany, with 83 million people, has the exact same mixed-member proportional system. And Germany has arguably the most competent government in Europe. Let me tell you now another story about another English-speaking country, to which Peter Turchin alluded in our interview with him. In 1848, a wave of revolution swept through Europe and killed tens of thousands, affecting nearly every country on the continent. All of these revolutions were put down within a year or two. Yet while chaos engulfed the continent, England had only peaceful demonstrations. Why? Because during a smaller but similar wave that swept Europe a generation earlier in the 1830s, for example, the 1832 uprising in France featured in Les Miserables, the elites of England recognized the stakes and passed the needed reforms. I wish we could do that today. In England, poor and corrupt governance had led to widespread calls for reform. The House of Lords rejected a reform bill in 1831, causing widespread rioting across England. Rioters took over cities, burned castles and jails, and terrified the elites. So the next year, the elites wised up and passed momentous legislation, the Reform Act of 1832, which is credited with creating Britain's modern democracy. This act reduced the number of parliamentary seats reserved for wealthy aristocrats while also expanding voting rolls from 400,000 to 650,000, now including many from the middle class. The law helped bring internal stability to Britain, which, along with other factors like the Industrial Revolution, helped the British avoid bloodshed in 1848 and then achieve unprecedented global dominance during the next century. It was the virtuous cycle in concrete terms. In France, meanwhile, the king simply beheaded or executed the protesters. So that's two great models for reform. Let's return now to the United States. In addition to expanding voting rights many times, the United States has had several other successful sweeps of electoral reform. I'd like to focus on the biggest sweep, brought about by none other than our favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt. Those of you who've been listening to this whole season of the podcast will recall that so many of our problems today were similar or worse during Roosevelt's time. Among these problems was the corrupt tyranny by party bosses. You'll remember New York Republican Party boss Thomas Platt and National Party boss Mark Hanna, Teddy's version of Mitch McConnell. The Constitution, at its founding, had called for senators to be appointed by state legislatures. But in the early 1900s, that had the practical effect of giving party bosses who controlled their state legislatures total power over their senators. To make a long story short, reformers called for direct election of senators by the people. And it was part of Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party platform in 1912. And in 1913, the 17th Amendment was passed and ratified to the Constitution, giving us the direct election of senators that we have today. 
other changes that the progressive electoral reform movement brought about include primary elections to further remove the power of party bosses, women's suffrage, the recall, the referendum, and the initiative. Even in modern times, a few states have experimented with new election rules. California, Washington, Louisiana, Alaska, and Mississippi all have what's called a jungle primary, in which everyone is allowed to run in a primary, and then the top two vote recipients run in the general election. In theory, this leads to more moderate winners. California adopted this practice by referendum only as recently as 2010, while Washington did so in 2004. It's actually not working because of a problem of vote splitting in which too many candidates run so a radical can, in theory, corner off a segment of the extreme primary electorate and win, similar to the Republican nomination of 2016. But there is a simple modification to the jungle primary system that would solve this problem, allowing voters to note their approval of as many candidates as they wish, and then only the top two approved candidates make the general. So far, we haven't gotten there yet. So I propose we should implement mixed-member proportional in the United States. How could we do that? Practically. The easiest thing would be for Congress to pass it, but that's unlikely. So instead, a state like Virginia, which has allocated 11 districts by the census right now, could redraw their districts to only have six regional districts plus five statewide districts to be allocated by mixed-member proportional. It would be fairer and in a state whose politics are split evenly, it just might pass. And you know what would make it even easier? This is my favorite idea because it's so simple. Let's double the number of congressmen. There's nothing magical about needing to have 435 congressmen. It's an artifact of a law passed in 1911 when the U.S. had 100 million people, less than a third of today's size. Today, each congressman represents 750,000 Americans, The next highest ratio in the rich countries is in Japan, with one representative per 250,000. Doubling the size of Congress would upend gerrymandering, it would also make it harder for the rich to own most of Congress, and it would make more competitive seats. It is crazy that in the 2018 midterms, less than 10% of House seats were truly competitive, and it was only the moderate districts. Also, doubling the number of seats would make implementing mixed-member proportional much easier. And it would also dilute the Electoral College. Doubling the size of the House is a win-win-win-win. And it's my best and easiest idea. Speaking of the Electoral College, we should just abolish it. As originally designed, it had one purpose, as stated by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 68. The process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of the president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to first honors in a single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union. The whole point of the Electoral College was to prevent the election of a demagogue like Trump. But that was back before the 24-hour news cycle, before the election was waged nationwide. It's time to just abolish it. America actually tried to do so in 1970, but it was filibustered in the Senate. 
So to summarize, we've got three institutional solutions. Ending gerrymandering, public campaign finance, and electoral reform. The states were intended to be laboratories of democracy, and states today should experiment with all of these proposals. So, to conclude, recall that our institutional problem in America is that we have the wrong representatives with the wrong information and the wrong incentives. The wrong information problem can be addressed by education and media reform, but we've talked about enough today, so we'll leave these for a future episode. I've put forward three institutional reforms to fix the problem of the wrong people with the wrong incentives, ending gerrymandering, campaign finance reform, and electoral reform. These are necessary reforms, even if they aren't sufficient. I'll add briefly that voting rights can, of course, be part of electoral reform, but it's an issue under heavy scrutiny from tribalism. In fact, all of these proposals are threatened by tribalism, and since tribalists are in charge right now, they will resist them. But remember the story of New Zealand. One party sacrificed their power for the good of the country. It's true that if it ain't broke in America, we shouldn't fix it. But our system is beyond broken, and it's time for change. Just like Teddy Roosevelt did, or like Stephen Skoranek said, we can make these changes before complete catastrophe befalls us, as warned by Peter Turchin, Shakespeare, and history. Our founders did gift us many built-in mechanisms to prevent the worst outcomes, and in many ways they have succeeded wildly. We are starting with a very strong hand because of their genius. But we now have more than enough data to conclude it's time for reform in order to prevent a full-blown dystopia. Like only 10% of societies of the past, let's use early warning signs to pass needed reforms before it's too late. Instead, let's build a wonderful society, another golden age. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.